Welcome to the American Families of Faith podcast. Hosts Lauren Marks and Dave Dollahite share insights gained from two decades of research interviewing various people about the crossroads of faith and family life. Visit AmericanFamiliesOfFaith.byu.edu to learn more. Okay, here we are, Dave Dollahite and uh, Lauren Marks doing our uh, podcast on uh, Jewish families based on a chapter in a book that we edited called Strengths of Diverse Families of Faith. And the chapter is called Shalom Bait, Peace of the Home, Ritual and Tradition in American Jewish Families. And uh, the authors for this chapter, there were six authors. The first two authors were uh, graduate students um, at BYU. Uh, the second two authors were Jewish colleagues of ours. And the last two authors were um, Lauren and myself. So I just want to say just a word or two about each of the authors. Uh, Heather Kelly uh, was a graduate student here uh, working with us in the American Families of Faith Project from which uh, these studies come. She's now a doctoral student at uh, Utah State University. Uh, Ashley the Baron was also a master's student here working with us and, and uh, now is a, a finishing up her doctorate at University of Arizona. Uh, Dave, don't mean to interrupt, but please. Bragging, bragging rights, both of those two uh, remarkable students were awarded presidential fellowships for their doctoral work, the highest honor that a PhD student can receive. Just, you know, had to take a minute to brag on both of them. Yeah, they're amazing people and amazing students, and uh, it was a delight to work with them on this on this chapter. Our two Jewish authors, uh, co-authors, uh, Lance Sussman is a rabbi at Reform Congregation Knesset Israel uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, our friend Jay Fagan is a professor in the School of Social Work at Temple University, and uh, Lauren and I have known Jay uh, over, I don't know, just three decades now, as we see him at uh, national conferences that we attend to various places around the country. So I think it might be Uh, At the end of the podcast, we're going to share some personal stories that each of us have had, uh, personal experiences that we've had uh, with Jewish friends and with um, our attending services and uh, just some some cool experiences that we've had. But I just want to say up front, my mom was best friends with uh, her dear friend, Ann Sinsky, uh, growing up. And when I was baptized as an infant in the Episcopal Church, when the priest asked my mother who would be my godparents, uh, she said that, well, my godfather would be my uncle who became an Episcopal priest, so that was perfectly acceptable. She said that my godmother would be her friend, Ann Sinsky. And when the priest asked about Ann, uh, she said that she was her best friend, you know, grew up uh, very close and, and a lifelong friend. And the priest said, well, what a Tell me about her religion. She said, well, she's non-practicing Jewish. And uh, the priest said, oh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, we cannot have a Jewish godmother for a Christian baptism. It needs to be a baptized Christian. And my mom said, well, she promises that she'll raise Dave as a Christian if something happens to us. Um, so so we feel very good about it. And he said, no, no, we just can't do that. It's not allowed. And my mom, being the strong person she is, said, well, in that case, uh, Father Ewald, uh, then Dave will not be baptized. And Father Ewald quickly backtracked and said, well, you know, Elizabeth, I think maybe we can make an exception in this case. So I have an Episcopal priest for my godfather and uh, a dear um, godmother, Ann Sinsky, who we exchanged um, Hanukkah cards over the years. So I'll say a little bit more about some personal experiences uh, at the end of the interview. Uh, But that's just to say I have a deep and abiding uh, sense of admiration and, uh, and respect and love for Jewish people and for the Jewish faith. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about a a study that we published, and uh, it was in both uh, um, an online article as well as a chapter in our book. And we're going to focus, as we do with all of the the podcasts that focus on different faith communities, we're going to tell you a little bit about the folks who we interviewed and then share some a number of quotes, uh, first-person quotes from those who we interviewed, uh, them discussing how their faith and their family life are connected. So just a little bit of general background, there's about 14 million Jews worldwide, about 2% of the global population, and about 40% of of Jews live in the United States, uh, perhaps even slightly more than those who live in the state of Israel. 
Judaism is the religious aspect of a larger Jewish culture. So obviously, like any other faith, not all Jews are highly religious. There's a wide range of levels of religiosity. There's a great diversity in how people practice their religion. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, more about that as we go along. Jews in the United States uh, often characterize themselves as belonging to a unique cultural or ethnic group. And for some, being Jewish is identified mainly or strongly by their religious observance, whereas for others who are not particularly religious, it's more on shared values and preferences for cultural things, foods, and, and so forth. In this article, we will focus on American Jews who are religiously observant and who are involved with a synagogue from one of the three main branches of Judaism, uh, Reformed, Conservative, and Orthodox. These groups tend to vary in forms of worship and in degrees of religious observance, uh, with Orthodox Jews tending to be more strict in their observance, although there's quite a bit of variation and diversity in Orthodox Judaism as well. Judaism survived and evolved for for thousands of years, about four millennia, uh, and some scholars have partially credited the survival of Judaism to the the importance and value that Judaism places on the family. In many ways, it is a home-centered and synagogue-supported faith. Jewish sacred texts and laws, we, we have both taken significant time to read through sacred texts, although it's still only a drop in the bucket, admittedly. But the, the sacred texts and laws emphasize the, the importance of marriage and childbearing and child rearing, the responsibilities that, that accompany those. And while the Torah uh, provides some guidelines for marriage, uh, the Talmud uh, addresses marriage in much more depth, including some expositions on responsibilities, obligations, and practices that, that should ideally occur within marriage. Some Jewish individuals, including those that we've interviewed, feel that their religious rituals and traditions are inherently important or sacred. Others uh, believe that rituals are important because of the perceived benefit these observances had on their family relationships, Uh, something that we've written about uh, elsewhere. Further evidence of the importance of the family in Judaism may also be seen clearly in the lives of Orthodox Jews, and we interviewed several families. Uh, Orthodox Jewish families generally have the highest levels of religious observance, and they also have the highest rates of marriage and fertility, uh, significantly higher than those of the general population. Not uncommon to encounter an Orthodox Jewish family with five, six children or more. However, in spite of the importance of family in Judaism, little research has focused on family processes in Jewish families. And and in this article we're going to be discussing with you today, we identify and explore strengths in exemplary Jewish families. These are families that were referred to us by their rabbis as being particularly strong. And these, uh, these data and these interviews led us to see how Judaism reportedly helps to foster positive outcomes in life, in marriage, and in parenting. So in terms of the specific folks who we uh, interviewed, we interviewed 30 Jewish families. Most of them were adults, married couples, but we also interviewed 15 um, youth between the ages of, of 10 and 20 as well. Interviews were conducted in the homes of participants um, with both spouses present. Kids were sometimes also involved, but not always. Uh, Participants were from a number of states, California, Delaware, Florida, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Utah. And the interviews varied from about one to about four hours in length. Average was about two hours. Uh, We transcribed the interviews verbatim, and that resulted in about 10,000 pages of data. So the things we're going to share with you today come out of a, a lot of information. We tried to pull those that we felt were reflective and representative of the others. Participants were primarily recruited through their rabbi's referral, but in a couple cases, uh, we had some Orthodox families who were added via participant referral. The husbands ranged in age from about 30 to about 60, uh, mean age of 50, and the wives ranged from um, 30s, basically a similar age range, uh, but their mean age was 47. And the kids you know, ranged from 10 to 20, average age was about 16. Sample was all white. Uh, They were highly educated, all completed a high school uh, degree, and most wives and husbands also had college degree and many held graduate degrees as well. 
Participants were from uh, three of the four major branches in Judaism, conservative. There were five conservative families, orthodox. We had nine orthodox families and reform. Uh, there were 14 reform families and a couple who did not specify the particular branch of Judaism. It should be noted that many Jewish people simply refer to themselves as just Jewish, meaning that they're not necessarily religious. They don't identify with one of the branches of Judaism. They're more Jewish in culture and heritage. We will now move to share some findings with you. And consistent with our approach in American Families of Faith, we strive to be choir directors instead of diva soloists. And we're going to make a concerted effort to share with you the voices of the families that we interviewed and hope that you'll appreciate their verbatim quotes. Uh, we're going to address three different domains, general life strengths first, uh, then second, marital strengths, and third, parent-child strengths. In Hebrew, the term for virtue is midah, and the midot are uh, often explicitly taught to children who are Jewish. However, the actual behavior is determined by the mitzvot, or the commandments, uh, which involve and include both the rituals and the ethics of Judaism. Jewish family members often refer to specific rituals and traditions that offered a template and a sense of purpose for these different dimensions of, of lived experience. And an Orthodox mother named Naomi said, Judaism is very explicit in a lot of ways. There's no area of life that hasn't been addressed in Judaism. It's very incredible how much guidance that we get. I think that it's hard to separate God from Torah in Judaism. God gave the Jewish people Torah, and Torah tells us how to live and how to treat your spouse. So a theme that emerged were, you know, similar to this quote that Lauren just mentioned, uh, the way that Judaism influences all aspects of life, including marriage and family life. A number of folks talked about the ways that rituals and traditions help them to celebrate times of joy, as well as to cope with very difficult times in their family, uh, times of, of pain and loss and stress. For example, a, a Jewish youth that we interviewed, we'll call Caleb, from the Reform branch, shared how Jewish ritual helped him to cope with the violent death of his uncle. Caleb said, I had an uncle who was murdered. I found comfort in the ritual that's associated with death. It really helped me deal with the suddenness and the sadness of it. The burial ritual, the funeral ritual, the Shiva ritual, of uh, staying at home with family for seven days are things that help me to cope in the short term. And during the service, the Kaddish prayer, the prayer for memory or prayer for the dead was very comforting for me. It's not that I necessarily believe that there is a God listening to my prayers. It's more that the comfort of doing something that I've done all my life has made it comfortable and given me the space to deal with those types of trying situations. So I just want to mention here that, you know, Lauren and I are going to be reading a number of Hebrew words, and we'll do our best to pronounce them correctly. We will almost certainly uh, make mistakes, and we apologize to any of our Jewish listeners if and when we butcher a word. It's also the case that um, there are sort of our at least two major branches of pronunciation, uh, Ashkenazi and Sephardic, that Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews use. So sometimes words will be slightly different. Um, we read them as, as they were spoken by those who we interviewed. Another example of this sort of how Judaism sustains people through challenges, Ziva, a reform mother, said, you don't have to wait until the end of your life to suddenly be wise. If you use Jewish traditions and the teachings early in your life, you can have wisdom by just trusting the tradition. It's a tradition that enriches your life and teaches how to make ordinary moments holy and how to make dreadful moments bearable. Similarly, a reformed father named, uh, we'll call Abe, uh, reflected on the idea of the holy. He said, I look at the world around me. I look at the cosmos. Everything is holy. There is a holiness to the world, the grand world that we have to look at and through many different avenues. Some of it is science. Some of it is faith. Science tells us how things are happening. Faith tells us what we should do with that information and how we should make sure to enjoy the beauty of the world around us. We now shift from general life strengths to our second theme, relational strengths in marriage. And in this section on marriage, we present three different sub-themes that identify how Judaism reportedly influenced and enhanced the marriage of the wives and husbands that we spoke with. First, we'll discuss the sub-theme, marriage is sacred. 
A sacred and idealized view of marriage was offered by Mariah, an orthodox wife, who expressed how sharing a religious identity with one's spouse can enrich marriage. She said, I believe that we're supposed to try to find a partner to share life with on the deepest level. The joyous things that life will bring us, and then the incredible challenges that will certainly come. If you share uh, the religious, if you have that in common, a religious level, a spiritual level, the joys will be even more joyful and more enriching, and the really difficult times will be more bearable because you have each other. Eli, an Orthodox husband, said, the purpose of marriage is to increase the holiness of human relationships. We hope to have an emotional, intellectual, and spiritual dimension where we can help each other to try to ascend to a higher level, or at least become more what we should be. Uh, Leah, a conservative Jewish wife, similarly expressed how she experienced holiness in her marriage. She said, I have felt metaphorically the hand of God at very pivotal moments in life. I mean, one can be together in a room and have little emotional contact, but there clearly have been times when the contact between us has been so strong and so different. I look at those times as experiences when my husband and I were connected more than usual, and those would be the times that we were closer to God and each other. And we were moving toward being more holy individuals and as a couple. I think that those times, coincidentally, some of them definitely did come as a result of religious observance. So as um, we're listening to these Jewish individuals talk about God, uh, you know, we're reading their quotes uh, from the transcriptions. And many Orthodox Jews, when they write the Word of God, do not write G-O-D. They write G hyphen D as a way to sanctify the name of God and respect it. Because if the paper on which that name is written were to be destroyed or just thrown away, then for many Jewish people, that would be a kind of a desecration. So even as we're reading these and I'm seeing G hyphen D, I'm thinking of that sort of devotion to God that many Jewish participants who we interviewed expressed. On the other hand, I'm also thinking of uh, the fact that not all Jews feel close to God and, and emphasize a relationship with God. I'm thinking of a family that I interviewed where I asked the question, how has your relationship with God influenced your relationship with each other? that is the, uh, the married couple. And I asked them, how does your relationship with each other influence your relationship with God? And I'll never forget as they looked at me with kind of confused face and, and the husband said, could you repeat that question? And so I repeated it. And then he and his wife looked at each other and he said, my wife and I have been married for 22 years. And in all those years, we have never once talked about God. God has nothing to do with our marriage. Our marriage is about Jewish tradition. Jewish legacy, Jewish observance. It's not about God. And then his wife said, well, honey, remember that time in Pennsylvania during breakfast when we had that talk about God? And he said, excuse me, Dr. Dahlhead, I, I stand corrected. We've been married 22 years, and in that time we have talked about God exactly once. <laughs> so just that diversity um, sure. within Judaism is just is profound. It's fascinating. It's, it's surprising to many Christians that you could be deeply religious but not focus on a relationship with God. But for many of our Jewish participants, it was more about other things. Okay, so let's uh, turn now to the second theme uh, in our sort of uh, domain of marriage, and that's a theme focused on ritual facilitating relational success. Atevia, a Reformed husband, explained how sharing Judaism had unified his marriage to his wife, Ruth. He said, there's a lot of stuff I think we take for granted about our relationship in terms of knowing that we're on the same page with stuff. We don't even need to talk about it. We're on the same page. We just know that if my wife said, I want to stay home this Saturday and just observe Shabbat at home, well, she knows I'm there. If she wanted to go do something in the synagogue, we go. In response to a question that we asked of our participants, are there ways that your religious beliefs or practices help you to avoid or reduce marital conflict? One Jewish woman we'll call Aisha said, the first thing that comes to mind is the routine. And another thing that I've come to understand and believe is that religious belief and truly religious moments don't just come from nowhere. One has to be in the habit of religious practice and religious observance. 
If you wait for the mood to hit you, it never will. But if you go, if you observe, if you practice on a regular basis, then you're open to God. I think that our routine of going to synagogue every week, that it is something that we do whether we really feel like it or not, that's what we choose to do. It's about the Sabbath. It's what you do on the Sabbath. It is such a calming experience when tensions are high, when frustration is high. For uh, Israel, an Orthodox husband, he talked about the rules of Jewish tradition uh, that help him and his wife avoid conflict. He explained, things that might have been conflicts before aren't even issues because we know the rules. What are we doing on Saturday? Well, that's not an issue. Where and what are we eating? That's not an issue. This is the way it is. I want to go somewhere. We look at the calendar. Oh no, we can't go here because it's Yom Tov. It's a holiday. But it's okay. It's not a conflict between us. These are not issues because there's a higher authority that we are all agreed with. That is our priority. And that kind of binding power of regular religious observance is the word that our Jewish friends tend to use. The practices, the rituals, the celebrations, the traditions. It was just very interesting to see how often kind of a shared agreement on doing observances regularly, every day, every week, every year, that that allowed people to have a unified perspective, a unified vision for their life, and help them, as we just heard, avoid a variety of conflicts. A third marital idea that came up repeatedly from the wives and husbands with whom we visited was that relational success is a duty. A mother named Tamara expressed, I think one of the strong points of Judaism is a sense of personal responsibility. And certainly in any conflict we've had, it's been really important to own up to whatever part we have in the conflict. And that's something that comes straight from Judaism. That thought of, did I do something wrong? And if so, I need to fix it and apologize for it, as opposed to just, well, it'll go away. Forget about it. And that's one of the things that I really admire about my husband, Jerry. He will always apologize. He will always say, I'm wrong. A conservative husband named Asher uh, expressed how marriage comes with a responsibility to work through difficulties and, and preserve the marriage. And he said, marriage is a sacred bond that should be upheld at all costs, if at all possible. I think that from that perspective, my wife and I have worked a lot on and are continually working on the marriage because of that perspective. It is not something that will come easy, so you need to continually work at it. It's kind of like a second job. If you want it to continue going well, you've got to keep working on it. I'll pause here to say that from the broader American Families of Faith project, even though those we interviewed were from exemplary marriages who'd been referred to us by their clergy, the myth of a problem-free marriage was repeatedly shattered. Even the strongest of, of all marriages and families dealt quite a bit with conflict resolution and the challenges of life. And that is encouraging, I think, for many of our, our college-age students to hear as, as they're contemplating future marriage. It's not perfection you're after. It's, uh, it's conflict resolution and dedication and commitment exemplified very well by many of these Jewish families. Uh, Uriel, a conservative Jewish husband, explained how the Jewish teaching and aspiration of Shalom Bayis helped him and his wife resolve conflict. He said, the Jewish version of domestic tranquility, of amity in the home, what Jews call shalom bayis, peace in the home, is a very big concept in Jewish thinking. It is not the notion of a compliant wife who will go along with everything a guy says and therefore they have peace. It's quite the opposite. They both know how to argue. They both hold their own. I think it's precisely because we can argue that we can do well. That's the secret. Uh, I'm reminded of the Jewish scholar Barbara Meyerhoff, who did some qualitative work as well with Jewish individuals and families, and who said, quoting one of her participants, we fight to keep warm, uh, <laughs> just to keep the blood flowing. Doesn't mean it's damaging, just to, just to stay fresh and alive. They <laughs> well, that also reminds me of an interview I did with a conservative Jewish family in New England. A husband and a wife and and their 11-year-old daughter. And as I would ask them questions, 
um, they would frequently disagree with each other, and the uh, the daughter would frequently disagree with the parents, and the parents seemed so proud and so happy when their daughter disagreed with them. And I was just smiling and listening to this, and uh, after, I don't know, maybe an hour or so, the daughter said to me, now, are you Jewish or are you Christian? And I said, I'm Christian. She said, huh, because you don't seem surprised that we're arguing so much. Uh, she said, I have friends, uh, Jewish friends and Christian friends, and whenever my Jewish friends come over and me and my parents are arguing, you know, they just jump right in and they argue too, and everyone's happy arguing. But whenever my Christian friends come over, if my parents and I argue, as we often do, she gets very uncomfortable and tells me afterwards, you shouldn't argue with your parents. You should just respect them and do what they tell you. And she said, so how come you're so comfortable? I said, I've been around a lot of Jewish folks, and I've seen that that's definitely a, a strength and an important part of Jewish family life. And she said, well, okay. Anyway, it was uh, interesting to, to hear her discuss how her friends perceive her family life and how culture and religion can, doesn't always, but it can have quite a, a strong impact on people's uh, family cultures. We're going to shift gears now and talk about relational strengths in the parent-child relationship. We'll talk about three sub-themes, how ritual facilitates relational success, uh, that relational success is a duty, and God is a relational model. So the first theme, uh, ritual facilitates relational success in, in parent-child relationships. A reform mother, uh, Lilla, said, talking about Jewish values as a family, Shabbat, pausing and coming together, helps us when conflict arises because we're all there together as a family. Other Jewish practices had a similar kind of a bonding effect between parents and children. When asked how her beliefs or practices helped her avoid conflict or you know, resolve conflict, a Reformed Jewish mother, uh, we'll call Aisha, said, there is a big emphasis in our services on taking responsibility for and forgiving other people, on praying for forgiveness for yourself, praying for healing for other people. It takes you out of yourself. And it works with the kids, too, because there's prayers that the parents say to their children. I think blessings. It's a nice bonding thing. It relaxes all those tensions. Similarly, Pesha, a mother who we interviewed, reported that she felt closer with her children during weekly parent-child blessings. She said, Blessing the children on Friday night is a special time when the parents bless the children. It's a beautifully wonderful and tender moment that we do and our children have come to expect. We don't just put our hands on their heads and bless them. We also each say something to each child about something that we're proud of that they've done this week. It's just a wonderful thing that we didn't make that up. If we look at what our tradition teaches us, it was already there. Jewish parents have been doing that for thousands of years. And later, this um, same mother talked about how when they say something nice about the children, the children expect that it won't just be some kind of generic thing, that it needs to be quite specific about something that they did well that week, that the children really value hearing from their, their mother and their father uh, what they appreciated most about what that child did uh, that particular week. It's really hard for, I think, for Dave and I not not to spin off here for an hour and talk about the holy envy that we feel for the Shabbat tradition. We, in fact, published an entire article elsewhere that I hope we'll return to in a future podcast just to zero in on all that we can learn, uh, both inside and outside of Judaism, from this marvelous ritual, the Shabbat celebration, the accompanying blessing of the children, and I look forward to that in a future podcast. But uh, returning to parenting, a second theme for parenting was relational success is a duty. If that sounds familiar, it's because it was also a theme in marriage. But we report to our listeners what our participants themselves said, and, and it was defined as a duty both uh, maritally and in the parent-child relationship. Many participants, uh, including parents and child uh, children, uh, stated that in Judaism, Parent-child relational success is a shared responsibility. It's not just nice. It is a, it's a responsibility. Benjamin, a 20-year-old Orthodox son, Deborah, his 17-year-old sister, their mother, Hannah, and Eli, their father, discussed this idea. And this was a, a fun interview, I think, that you did, Dave, where you essentially had the whole family there with some bantering. Benjamin, a 20-year-old son, kicked off by saying, my family argues over little things all the time. Of course, like anybody, 
but we've never had any serious emotional arguments that disrupted general family life. I'm sure that Judaism has a lot to do with that, because you have laws governing how you're supposed to act towards your parents and towards your children. And when you have a legal system, almost, that prescribes in what ways you can respond, you aren't so totally at sea as many people are. Deborah, the 17-year-old daughter, interjected on how to interact with your parents. Benjamin then responded, and your children. It goes both ways. The mother, Hannah, said, we have mutual respect. And Eli, the father, says, oh, yes, we're very wise and loving parents, uh, <laughs> joking around uh, a little bit there. And then Benjamin finished up the 20-year-old son by say, saying, not joking, uh, yeah, having respect for your parents is something that is not generally a common trait in this society, but it's impossible to be halakhically observant and not have respect for your parents. So we fight to stay warm and the, the bantering and the disagreement. It is important to note that even that takes place ideally with, within bounds of, of respect. A similar sense of responsibility and equity shared between parents and children seemed to be important to Alexandra, a reformed mother we spoke with. She said, one of the things that we do regularly when I'm wrong is that I'm able to tell my daughter, I've been wrong, and this is why I've been wrong. And to ask her forgiveness is a really important part of Judaism. If you have wronged another individual, you have to work out the relationship with the individual before you can get real forgiveness from God. However, that's not why I do it. The real important part to me is that my daughter knows that I'm able to say I'm wrong when I'm wrong. I teach her that. It reminds us of the, the marital example we heard regarding a husband named Jerry earlier, the humility to confess when he's wrong. You know, uh, Dave, I'm reminded of a student that, uh, that I had a couple years ago who, reading through some of these interviews, made a really interesting point of saying, you know, perhaps one thing that parents can teach their children, that even God cannot teach them directly, is how to sincerely apologize and say, I am wrong. And that, that's something that's always remained with me. And I'm reminded of that when we, when we get to hear from, uh, from these parents discussing the importance of humbly apologizing even to their child, not just to their spouse. Yeah, the thing that Benjamin was talking about with the structure, the halakhical, that word means legal or you know, laws. Judaism is not simply a set of beliefs, not simply a set of practices, not simply a set of ethics. It also has a, a legal dimension where, you know, you think about how most people feel about the law. Uh, if they break the law, they feel that they've done something wrong and, and they understand that, that they need to change. The idea that, you know, honor thy father and thy mother is, is a divine commandment, it's a, it's a divine law. Not just the Jewish kids I spoke with, but other religious kids who referred to that particular commandment and then said something like, yeah, I see a lot of my friends who aren't very respectful, much less obedient to their parents. They don't honor them. They lie to them. They sneak around behind their back. But because I believe that God has commanded me to respect my mother and my father, I can't do that. I can't lie to them. I can't sneak around behind their back. I can't yell back at them in, in disrespectful ways. It was just powerful that the, uh, the idea of religious teaching, religious commandments can help structure family relationships in powerful and very helpful ways. Our third and final uh, theme uh, under the in the parenting domain is God as a relational model. This was not something that was mentioned extensively, but a few people shared this and being important to them that God is a is a sort of a model for them as a parent. Mariah, a Hasidic Jewish mother, described a book uh, on Jewish life that she read that uh, helped her to use God's example in her parenting. She said. It's a book about forgiveness and understanding using God's example. You don't just make one mistake and God turns his back on you. It's about forgiveness, modeling our own forgiveness and understanding and patience as parents after God's example. 
I've thought that there are things that people could do that you could just never forgive them for. And I'm thinking now, that's kind of harsh, but God doesn't do that. I've enjoyed reading that and applying it to the relationship with our children and how we parent. So we'd now like to just uh, share some some thoughts about these interviews that we did uh, with 30 Jewish families and kind of what we've taken away, as well as share some other experiences that we've had with our Jewish friends. It's interesting that the, the first two authors of this chapter, as we mentioned uh, at the beginning, are both graduate students, and they're actively involved in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they both told us that they were largely unfamiliar with Judaism's practices, beliefs, and culture before they started to write this article. And they said that that probably facilitated some objectivity in analyzing and interpreting the findings. But that they were a little concerned that maybe uh, their lack of understanding about Jewish customs might have not been helpful to them. And so we did invite two Jewish colleagues of ours to be involved in this chapter and to provide some insider checks and balances, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, a Jewish rabbi and a Jewish uh, scholar of family life. And so both Rabbi Sussman and Jay were very helpful in kind of framing the quotes that we mentioned and helping explain what they meant and why understanding Jewish family life is not an easy thing because of the tremendous diversity within each branch of Judaism, across the branches, within any family. In fact, it reminds me of how often as I interviewed Jewish families, there was that lively banter, that back and forth. It was so fascinating to watch when the kids would disagree with their parents' interpretation. I never saw the parents being upset. I saw them being proud of their children for caring enough about the faith to have studied it, to have an opinion. I remember a couple times when a, a father would say something and then a daughter or a son would say, well, you know, dad, actually, I disagree because Rabbi Hillel says this. And they'd quote a rabbi back and they'd watch the father just smile. You know, I'm, in other words, I'm so proud of you that you're coming back at me from the tradition and I'm delighted that you disagree with me. That's such a unique dynamic in Jewish families. It is. In this article, uh, which is now a chapter in a book in our book as well, um, we've we've tried to explore how and why Jewish families are reportedly influenced by Judaism in, in salutary, healthy, uplifting, strengthening ways uh, in, in both the personal lives and in their family relationships. For the families that we interviewed, Jewish ritual and tradition and observance seem to foster a sense of duty, responsibility, and, and unity at both the marital and the parental levels, as, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, the findings of our study indicate that uh, the importance of Jewish belief and values to family life is profound for some. However, as Dave has mentioned earlier, there's a lot of diversity within the community, and there's also a high level of secularism within Judaism. But despite that secularism that's occurring uh, throughout Jewish communities, the findings of our study indicate that Judaism and being Jewish remain a significant contributing factor in individual and family life for many. Rabbi Sussman, one of the contributing authors of this paper, notes that even among individuals who are not affiliated with a formal Jewish institutional setting, Judaism still plays an important part and, and role in family life. So now we're going to uh, reflect a little bit just on some personal experiences that we've had as we've gone to services and, and weddings and interacted with our Jewish friends uh, on their home turf, on their sacred ground. I'll never forget the first bar mitzvah that I attended where, actually it was a bat mitzvah, uh, bar mitzvahs uh, for uh, boys and bat mitzvahs for girls. So this was a, a young lady. And, uh, and by the way, for me, I've probably attended, I don't know, 10 or 12 bar or bat mitzvahs over the years in various states. Those are my favorite religious meetings to attend. I've attended hundreds of services across uh, many different denominations and enjoyed them all. There's just something really powerful about a bar or bat mitzvah where uh, you know a 12-year-old girl or a 13-year-old boy um, kind of comes of age religiously conducts the service, um, gives, uh, you know, reads, reads from the Torah, chants from the Torah in Hebrew, uh, gives a sermon, does the, the blessing, uh, the Kaddish over the wine, to watch the, the parents beam with pride as their child kind of takes upon them the mantle of the Jewish faith and kind of 
demonstrates, you know, what years of uh, study in Judaism and in Hebrew can do. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. So after the first bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah that I attended, we were all enjoying the refreshments in the uh, adjoining room next to the sanctuary. And I was being a chocoholic. I was eating some candies. And a woman came up to me, and I had just popped a candy in my mouth, and I said, oh, that, that's really good. And she said, oh, yes, those are Mrs. Goldblum's famous rum toffees. And I said, oh, are they made with actual rum? She said, of course, that's why they're so good. And I said, actually, I'm Mormon, and I don't drink alcohol. She said, oh, no, then you're at the wrong table. This, this is a non-kosher table for you. Here, come over here. This is the table you want to be at. And she just took it in stride. You know, uh, Jews who keep kosher have various kinds of restrictions in their diet. And so the idea that someone would choose not to eat something was not at all surprising. And she simply took me over to the place where I could enjoy a non-alcoholic chocolate. I'm thinking of the six months I spent on sabbatical in Amherst, Massachusetts, and having the chance to get to know uh, Rabbi Chaim Edelman the Chabad rabbi there. Uh, Chabad Lubavitch is a Hasidic community, and they have um, at many colleges and universities across the country, they have a kind of a student center, like a Hillel center, but this is for uh, you know, Orthodox students. And they reach out and try to involve and encourage many uh, non-Orthodox Jews as well as non-Jews to come and study Torah. And I was able to study for uh, about four months both Torah and Talmud uh, under the great teaching of, of Rabbi Edelman. And because of that, he invited me to a number of wonderful celebrations that they had there during the time that I was there, um, including Purim, Shavuot, and Pesach. In fact, my daughters and I spent about five hours at the Chabad house on Passover, first night of Passover, and it was an incredibly wonderful experience. My kids, my girls still talk about how memorable that was for them. The joy of that celebration was uh, was incredible. Interestingly, uh, near the end of the Passover celebration, it was about midnight, the tradition that Rabbi Edelman represents, one of their practices is to go to the front door, open up the front door, and to preach repentance to the Gentiles in a friendly Jewish way. And so we got over to the door, he opened up the front door, and across the street in the parking lot were a probably between 80 and 100 college students uh, after a football game, and they were partying. And let's just say that they were, you know, uh, loud and proud uh, football players and, and fans uh, that, that were uh, clearly intoxicated. And so the rabbi yelled across the street, do you mind if I preach repentance to you for a few minutes? We're, we're doing a Passover, and this is one of our traditions. And they said, sure, rabbi, go for it. And so he preached repentance to them for a few minutes. And frankly, I was a little bit worried. I could see that this could go south. A bunch of drunk football players and a Hasidic rabbi preaching repentance to them. I thought, you know, I started looking for the back exit, just okay. just in case they came over to, <laughs> to you know. Got to know where your safety. Got to know where, how you're going to escape. Anyway, they were great. You know, he was fun, and and they all laughed, and it, you know, they applauded at the end. It was just this beautiful, beautiful moment. But um, that, that's one of the memories I have of connection with with Jewish folks. One for me, Dave, that stands out vividly in my mind. You and I have talked about how calculating over the course of our our lives, uh, we've attended thousands of religious services, literally thousands, most of those being within our own faith tradition for you, First Episcopalian and then Latter-day Saint, but many services as well across a variety of the, the Abrahamic faiths. For me, one of the most memorable and most cherished of all attendance experiences for me, worship-wise, took place in the Midwest. I was in Wisconsin visiting with a friend of mine, very, very close friend named Harriet. And she had a dear friend who was Orthodox Jewish. Her name was Cheryl. She has since passed. And Cheryl and I had a wonderful discussion. And she said, what, what is your last name again? And I said, Marks. And she said, you, you know that that is a Jewish name. And I said, I, I am aware of that. And she lamented that, that I had been lost to the Jewish people. And it, it was not in any way intended to be offensive, but there was such a love in her of Jewish tradition, of, of the religion, that it was a cause for mourning. 
And I said to Cheryl, Cheryl, may I go to services with you as a guest? And she brightened up and she said, that would be lovely. And so we attended her Orthodox synagogue together. She provided me with a yarmulke and with a prayer shawl so that I would be appropriately attired. We moved in to the synagogue. Uh, there were warm welcomes. And during the worship service itself, as is custom and tradition in Orthodox synagogues, the women and the men are on separated signs of a, a partition, a sacred partition. And the intent, in part, is to make sure that all of your attention is directed upon holy things. Indeed, even at certain portions in the service, when you don the prayer shawl and, and put it over the top of your head to obscure your view to the right and to the left, it almost forces focus to the bima or, or the stand where, where the Torah is. And part of that, that experience that really moved me was when the Torah was read and the scroll was then rolled back up and brought very reverently and carefully by the rabbi down the aisles. Each of the men there would have the opportunity to give reverence to the, the revealed word of God, the Torah. And many would kiss their tzitzit, the, the tassel on their prayer shawl and touch that to the Torah itself, not touching it with, with their hands, but with the sacred tassel. And a couple of places to my left, if memory serves me, there was a, an old man. He, he must have been in his 80s. And for him, I, I saw his eyes fill with tears. For him, this was a deeply sacred moment to be able to kiss his tzitzit and touch it to the Torah. And I have to, I have to tell you that although that's been maybe 20 years, uh, almost 20 years since that experience, to this day when I'm at home and one of the kids knocks a Bible off the uh, table and it hits the floor, I feel this reverence that, that was infused, I think, in me in part from that service to pick that up quickly, to, to treat the Word of God the revealed word of Hashem with deep respect. It was interesting, of course, Cheryl was on the other side of the, the partition. And instead of having a feel of gender segregation for me, after the service was over, the reunion between the men and the women, the wives and the husbands, seemed that much sweeter that that, that separated time added value to the time of uh, reunification and unity. I know that many would see that differently, but I was grateful for the chance to participate in that, that sacred experience as an insider welcomed me onto her sacred ground. So Lauren, you're sharing that experience reminded me of a sacred experience. I've had many sacred experiences worshiping at congregations uh, with friends of various faiths. And you reminded me of, of an experience that I had with this Chabad community in New England, where on a certain holiday, I believe it was Shavuot, I was gathered with the men, as you said, the men and the women are sitting, sitting separately. And at a certain point, some men came in and everyone covered their head with their prayer shawl. And the men said some words in Hebrew. It was kind of a, a chanting that was happening. And we all had our heads under our prayer shawls because you're not supposed to look. I didn't know it at the time, but what was happening was the priestly blessing that was being said by the Kohen, that is the priest, that is male direct descendants of Aaron, who is Moses' brother. The Jewish priesthood is a priesthood of those who are the male descendants of Moses' brother Aaron are the priests. And so, again, at the time, I didn't really know what was happening, and I couldn't really see what was happening. I could just hear. But what I know is that I felt something very powerful. I felt uh, very clearly that I was being blessed by God. 
It's a very similar feeling that I have felt when we've had uh, apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ who've come to different congregations that I've been in who have spoken an apostolic blessing, and I have felt blessed. And it was the same feeling. And so afterwards, I asked what was happening, and they explained to me the priestly blessing, why it was important, and they read it to me and translated it into English, so I, I knew what was being said. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May the Lord give you peace. And I have since read quite a bit about that and quite a bit about the Jewish priesthood. And to make a popular culture reference uh, for those who've watched uh, Star Trek, when Mr. Spock puts his right hand in the air and separates his fingers and says, live long and prosper. It turns out um, uh, Leonard Nimoy, the actor who, who played Mr. Spock in the original Star Trek, he was Jewish and he was not raised Orthodox, but his grandfather was Orthodox. And he would go with his grandfather to synagogue. And one time they did, when they did that blessing, he peeked out. You're not really supposed to look because the idea is that the power and the presence of God is there as the, as the priests are saying this blessing. And so you're, you're supposed to cover your eyes and, and not look, but he did what many kids do is he looked. And he saw how they were holding their hands. And so he asked uh, Gene Roddenberry, the producer of Star Trek, whether he could, you know, when he was greeting people, put his hand in the, in the air and say, you know, those words. And it was based on the priestly blessing. And I'll just never forget that powerful feeling and connection with a very ancient practice. That practice has been going on for at least 3,000 years throughout the world when those words are spoken, taken from the book of Deuteronomy by those who were direct descendants of, of Aaron. And it's just, it's, it was a powerful and wonderful blessing. I want to just share one last experience um, that my daughter Rachel and I had uh, when we were invited by Rabbi Edelman to attend a uh, Hasidic wedding in Crown Heights, New York. And so my daughter Rachel and I made the three-hour drive from Amherst down to Crown Heights. And uh, we spent an hour or so walking the streets and visiting shops in this very traditional Jewish neighborhood. Uh, Rachel at the time was 17. And I would like to read from her account, a written, you know, again, this is from the perspective of a 17-year-old girl who's not Jewish, who is, is a Christian attending a Jewish wedding. Rachel says, my dad has always been a Jewish buff. When I was a little girl, I would sometimes go to his Hebrew class at the local synagogue in North Carolina. I took uh, prayer book Hebrew for a year uh, at a synagogue. She says, in 2002, while we were living in Amherst, Massachusetts, dad, who was on sabbatical at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, found the Chabad House, a Jewish center at UMass for college students. The center, a large mansion just off campus, was run by an ultra-Orthodox Lubavitch Jew rabbi, Chaim Edelman, who lived with his wife and 11 of their 12 children. Rabbi Edelman invited my mom, dad, and I to Purim, the celebration of Queen Esther, and my sisters and dad and I went to Pesach, or Passover. Both these experiences were incredibly cool. We Gentiles were surrounded by men in uncut beards and fedoras and women in wigs lighting candles. Rabbi Edelman appreciated dad's sincere interest and understanding and invited him to a wedding in Crown Heights in New York City. I jumped at the chance to tag along. I don't know how many Gentiles, not to mention teenage Mormon girls, get to attend Hasidic Jewish wedding. Think Fiddler on the Roof, the Canopy, the Dancing, and the Feast. Crown Heights isn't the same New York City as the Plaza and Central Park. Formerly, it was an upscale part of town for wealthy Jews. Now the sidewalks are littered with debris, and stately buildings are divided into tiny apartments. The streets are hazy with cigarette smoke, and the air burns with sweat. I dressed modestly to Lubavitch guidelines in a long ankle-length skirt and long sleeve sweater in 80-degree weather and 90% humidity. We parked our car near the shul, the synagogue, on the corner of 770, next to where the late Reb, Rebbe lived. While living, the Rebbe was considered a potential Messiah, Moshiach in Hebrew, to many of his followers. Even after his death, some believed he may yet become Moshiach, a view considered heretical in Orthodox Judaism. In his younger days, Rebbe Menachem Schneerson denied such claims. Later in life, he refused to deny them. We got a tour of a museum dedicated to him through one of Dad's Just Street Met acquaintances. Then we found a general store where Dad had the dilemma over which menorah to buy. I listened to a Lubavitch boy band. Although I couldn't understand the Hebrew, the music was uncannily similar to other such Gentile boy bands. Amid stacks and piles of kippahs, I found one decorated with fruit, which I could wear at an Orthodox, conservative, or liberal synagogue. 
I would be covering my head with a scarf at this ceremony. Dad also got one to cover his head in the shul at the wedding. We had greasy latkes and bagels with locks at a local fast food place. One bite of raw pink flesh was enough for me. Dad just laughed when I threatened to become vegan. She actually did become vegan (laughs) later. Rachel goes on. The synagogue is on the corner of 770, adjoining the Rebbe's library wall. Men in sober black fedora hats, long black coats, and untrimmed beards lounged on the sidewalk in front. Some dragged on cigarettes. Some draped their coats over their shoulders in the heat, letting their tzitzit hang loose. Dad was invited down into the shul. I waited above by the entrance to the ladies' balcony, too timid to go in by myself. As I watched people pass and women going in and coming out, I wondered if any thought that I was Jewish. Finally, I talked myself out of my comfort zone and I went in. Women rocked their strollers as they rocked themselves. I'm going to get a little emotional here. I apologize. Praying, studying, meditating, and worshiping. I'm touched that my daughter is, is so tuned into what's happening is why I'm emotional. I went to the front of the bleachers to peer down where the men were. I once might have worried about the segregation, but understanding the ancient tradition that men can't pray while being distracted by women helped me ignore the would-be examples of the ultra-feminists in Amherst. I picked up the prayer book and began to feel the focus and the moment. Against my own inclination, I swayed too. In the melodic murmured reading of the scriptures by hundreds of voices, I comprehended the Hebrew and the meaning, although I did not understand the actual words. For every time Adonai was spoken, I knew that God was there behind Jewish tradition. Rabbi Edelman was outside the shul when Dad and I met him for the, after the service. He and Dad exchanged greetings. I was careful to smile and acknowledge his greeting to me without extending my hand. Dad had coached me beforehand that members of the opposite sex do not touch even to shake hands hello in that community. We had moved on a couple of steps down the sidewalk when Dad turned around to ask the rabbi, the rabbi more information of where to meet for the wedding. The rabbi had already disappeared into the shul. A young man approached and asked if we were attending Ronnie's wedding. Dad is brilliant at making instant friends, and soon the man offered himself and his wife to be our escorts. The man's apartment was surprisingly modern in comparison with my expectations. There were even fun magnets on the fridge. His wife, Lilani, whose name means ring or crown, had her wig askew because of her rambunctious children. Her mother, who is not Hasidic Jewish, was visiting from Florida and babysitting for the wedding. We were able to sit down for a few minutes and be out of the oppressive heat while they finished getting ready. Light refreshments were served in a large reception hall where dividing panels had been erected, although guests mingled freely. Lilani told me that we would not be totally segregated until coming back to the reception hall after the canopy ceremony. In chatting with Lilani and observing the, the diversity of guests, I came to realize that this marriage was unique. Ronnie and her husband-to-be were were ultra-Orthodox, but neither side of their families or friends were. They were both returnees, Baal Teshuva, or converts to Lubavitch Judaism from more liberal backgrounds. People filtered outside again to a wide alley between the shul and 770. Limos were parked in front. Men and women divided naturally, though I did see a few couples here and there, husbands and wives mostly not separated. Dad left me with a female student from one of his classes, and drifted to talk on the men's side. Finally, the wedding couple came. The marriage ceremony was short and sweet. Four corners of the canopy were raised, symbolizing the four corners of the earth and sky. Ronnie and the parents of the couple marched around the groom seven times. There was chanting and singing, and a trumpet played. Then the rabbi recited the seven blessings, and the couple was married. Ronnie and her new husband went to a room in the, Reb, in the Rebbe's home where they would be alone for the first time ever. Back in the reception hall, the caterers were setting up. Guests helped themselves to drinks at a bar, and we all began the intolerable wait. Traditionally, the bride and groom could stay alone for as long as several hours. After several false alarms, they did come. It was about two hours, as I recall. Ronnie to the women's side and the groom to the men's side. Ronnie ran through a bridge made of our arms to a waiting chair. The chair with Ronnie aboard was hoisted up into the air and danced around with. She gripped the chair tightly and laughed. She did not stop laughing all night. Ronnie was seated on a raised platform like a queen, which indeed she was for the night. Music began playing, and Ronnie's waiting maids did simple traditional dancing steps for the queen's enjoyment. A mitzvah is a commandment, and on a wedding day it is a mitzvah, 
to make the bride and groom the happiest they have ever been. Identifying the non-Hasidic guests was easy. We watched with curiosity and embarrassed shyness, hugging the edges of the dance floor. Some, including me, peered through the slats and the panel and gawked at the men, who were already shoulder to shoulder in a circle dance. Hasidic, liberal Jew, Gentile like dad, and Jamaican black alike. Then the real music began. Gradually but insistently, Ronnie's Lubavitch friends pulled us shy women out of our reserve and into the dance. No intricate steps or patterns were embarked on, just dancing for the sake of dancing. We grabbed the hands of those in and those out of the circle, pulling them into our dancing. Round and round Ronnie at the center. Ronnie danced with her friends and family, each individually. I stepped out and saw her dancing carefully, but not any the less enthusiastically with a woman who is at least 80 years old. I helped her friends tie cloth napkins together, forming a chain to be used as a kind of canopy over and around and through the dancers. Reluctant women were dragged in from corners, and the dancing continued. We grasped each other's hands, and there was nothing weird about the touch. Celebrating life and new beginnings need not be awkward or uncomfortable, and these people had found a way to cross the barrier through rhythm and movement. I stepped out of the circle for a minute, panting and hot from the exercise. But in contrast to the heat and humidity of that New York summer day, this hot was not oppressive. For that, in that moment, I had a small glimmer of what joy feels and looks like. I had never seen a woman more joyous, glowing, or purely beautiful than Ronnie, dancing for all her life in her white dress. Then with a deep breath, I stepped back into the circle and joined the dance. So that's the end of her account, which, by the way, was titled Joining the Dance. If Rachel sounds like an unbelievable 17-year-old, she was. She uh, is now a, a mother of four her and her husband uh, have lived in Boston and London and uh, San Francisco and, and now live here in Utah. And uh, she has a minor in Latin, um, got a, a master's at Harvard in museum studies. She, she's a brilliant person and a, and a spiritually uh, profound person. Anyway, I was uh, so emotional in reading that because I remember well that experience and that sense of uh, the sacred of God and the sacred reality of marriage. Doctors Dave Dollahite and Lauren Marks are both professors in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. The American Families of Faith Project shares research-based ideas about ways of making faith come alive in marriage and family life.